Um, so this morning, uh, finding your Bibles, Ephesians chapter 6. Also, finding your Bibles or be ready to flip to on your phone or whatever you're using. Uh, uh, Romans chapter 7, I'm going to want to take a slight detour there as well. It's been kind of a crazy week, hasn't it? A lot of things going on. A lot of things to talk about. Really troubled by um, some conversations I've had with my, my sisters, both of whom are professing Christians, who um, not only make decisions, but also have perspectives that are, I think, worldly. And when I challenge those perspectives, when I ask the question, why do you think what you think? Why do you believe what you believe? Why do you do what you do? Their fallback is, well, this is what I feel, or this is what I think, or this is, often this is what I think, or this is what I believe. And, and I want to challenge it. I want to say, well, why do you think that? Why do you believe that? Because, because you have to have a foundation, right? Because honestly, I just don't care what Paul's opinion is. He can, like, that's just Paul's opinion, and, 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 it, and it sticks with him, and I might agree with it or disagree with it, but there's no foundation there. Paul's not an authority in anything other than looking good in a striking blue shirt, in Austin, I brought the ties, man. I brought the ties for you. Come and see me after church. Um, that's not an authority. So your opinion means, means nothing. Like that's, like that, that's no, there's no basis there. And so when I try to dig at that basis, they have no reasoning. They have no basis. It's just what I feel. It's what I think. It seems right to me. It seems right to me, and I'm, I'm really troubled, not by the world, because the world, I mean, they do what seems right to them. Like, that's how those people live their lives, but we are different. We're different. And when I ask you, why do you believe what you believe, you better not come at me as a member of this church with a, well, that's what I think. It better come from something else. And, and what's interesting about this whole thing is that for 2,000 plus years, if we go back into the, the, when it was just Judaism, all the way back, that authority rested on the Word of God. And somehow, somehow Christians, and this is, this is what's so, so troubling to me, somehow Christians have forgotten that. And we read and we've been going through uh, this text, which is so visceral in its it's depiction of life. And the Bible, as I've said to many of you, is always using the word like. It's always equivocating a symbol to a reality. It says that God is like this. Uh, we read in the Bible that Jesus is like a, his feet are like burnished brass. And, and he's got this bright stash. And is, uh, stash? <laughs> he might have that too. Sash. I do imagine Jesus having a good stash, but, you know, it's, you know, there. We see God in his throne, and it's like all of these different colors. And we use the word like, 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 like. It's not what God is. If you looked at God, he's so indescribable. He's so other. He's so more than that all we can do is kind of grasp at a simulacrum of what that word really means, of what we mean when we say God. Same thing with heaven. We hear these like, like, like. It was like a city coming down, and there are these trees, and it's kind of like this and kind of like that. And it's so beautiful. It's so wonderful. It's so beyond anything you could ever dream or imagine that all we can do is try to scratch at the surface. And the same thing is true of hell. When Jesus calls it Gehenna, and people say, well, he's just, you know, he's just being metaphorical. He's just being 
you know, he's just trying to describe something. Yes, and that should terrify you. If Jesus talks about the afterlife for those who have not followed him as a place where we go and dump our poop and our garbage and we set it on fire so it'll go away, we should be terrified because whatever that is, hell is worse. Just like whatever God hasn't planned for the Christian, it's better. And so when we read in this text, when we read in this text, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might and put on that whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. What makes you think that he's not saying this is just like what I'm talking about? What you're in is worse than what's on the page. The battle that you're fighting is more eternal, more fearsome, more important than anything that I can describe. It is holding in the balance everything you are, everything you will be, your past, your present, your future. You are at war, church. We do a disservice to our own souls, our own lives, our own communities, our own families, our own scriptures when we forget that. And treat it as though it's something less than it is. You're at war. And Paul is pleading with you. He's begging you. He's trying to get you to listen up so that you can stand. Because the evil day is coming. He says, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm. So stand, again, that's the imperative. Stand then, girding your loins in truth and putting on the breastplate of righteousness and having your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace and in all times and circumstances and situations and everything that you face, take up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the burning arrows of the evil one. We're going to take the last half of verse 17 this morning. And the helmet of salvation sees it and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, obviously, you see in English here this last bit, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. This is missing something. It's missing a verb, right? And so we borrow from the previous section here, this verb to seize, or as my Bible translates, uh, take, and your Bibles might say take up or something like that. And I want you to remember that that exclamation point there is in Greek, the, the verb uh, is in an imperative form, and that there are only two places in this text that we have an imperative at the beginning and at the end here, and the imperative is the exclamation. So it's not like Paul is just saying, hey, it's a good idea, you know, you might want to take the sword of the Spirit with you, you know. If you happen to be out and about, and just, just you'll grab it and go, go ahead with it. No, he's, he's shouting at us. He's commanding. He's pleading. He's saying, seize it. Grab it. Take it up. You need this thing. You need this weapon. In, um, in the arsenal that Christian has here, the true weapon of a Jedi <laughs> is, of course, the lightsaber. And without the lightsaber... He's in a lot of trouble. Thank you, Njowskis, for sharing with us your toys. For the Roman soldier, as with the Jedi... (laughs) 
the title of the sermon is The Lightsaber of the Spirit, just so you know. For the Roman soldier, that's the weapon. That's the thing. If you're in battle and you lose everything else, but you, and you lose that sword, you're done for. You have to have that thing by your side. And by extension, Paul is saying that, hey, listen, this, this thing right here, this word of God, strap it to your side. You can't go anywhere without it. If you enter into battle without your weapon, what good are you? What good are you? And yet we see in our day and age, and I see in my Facebook feed and articles and magazines and Tumblr blogs, all this kind of stuff, I see so many people, Christians writing and Christians reposting or repurposing or sharing or whatever, a denial of this basic tenet. And they'll say things like, and perhaps you've seen it as well, um, the Bible never claims to be the word of God. The Bible never claims to be the word of God. And that's an, interesting, that's an interesting statement because technically you're right. There is no chunk of scripture that you could find. I can't point to you book, chapter, and verse and say, here is the list from Genesis to Revelation of all the books of the Bible that are inspired word of God. That's not there. I mean, that's true. But that leads us to ask the question of, well, what does the Bible say about itself? What, I mean, what does the scriptures call itself? And how have Christians for the past 2,000 or so years treated it? What does that mean then? What do they mean when they talk about the scriptures? And first we have Paul used scripture and God's spoken word interchangeably. He'll say, God said this, and quote the Old Testament. We see the New Testament do the same thing in various other places. It says, God said this, and it just quotes from the Old Testament. God spoke, and this is it. We see Peter and Paul both claim dual authorship. Now, of course, somebody sat down with paper and pen and wrote it down, but they use these things interchangeably, saying that, well, while, God, while man wrote, God spoke. By the Bible, the Word of God says that it is Nothing to be taken or added to it. It is effective. It is pure. It is precious. It is a life guide. It is soul food. It is a fire that purifies and a hammer that breaks. It cuts away falsehood. It is helpful. It is flawless. It is to be obeyed. It is all we need to know God. It is a standard by which all teaching is to be tested. It is faith building. It is for everyone. It is sin cleansing. It is a sword for battle. It is the very words of God. It is God breathed. It is life changing. It is life giving. It is spiritual nourishment. It is authoritative. It is teaching the blessed way. It is to be memorized, taught, and repeated. It is truth. It is Thus saith the Lord 431 times. And this doesn't even go into all the things that we could talk about. How it has changed lives. How it has repurposed, reproved, reproached, brought people to their knees. How it has been uh, shaped history. How it has literally been what we called holy script, holy writ for, for centuries, millennia, in which Christians said, you cannot deviate from this. This is truth. How do we summarize all of these thoughts? How do we summarize the fact that even though today no longer will the legal profession and the legal world accept the Bible as a, as a source of authority, and yet all of our modern historical laws, all of our history in the Western world is built upon these basic fundamental precepts we call the Ten Commandments. How do we describe the fact that though um, non-believers and uh, atheists and secular folks will say, well, we don't need the 
Bible to be good, and yet the whole history of the morality that they now lean against was built upon the foundation of the Scriptures, which is the only religion which begins with this precept that man and woman are fundamentally free and valuable because we have the only text that of ancient times said this, God decided, I will make man in my image. In the image of God, I will create them. Not because of wealth or power or structure. You are free and inherently valuable because God has placed his image upon you. How do we summarize all of this? I would say this, that the scriptures, the Bible, these, these books here in your hands or in your phone or on your tablet are utterly, completely, and finally, the word of God. And the church will fall, fail, and die. If at any point we say that's not true. And so my exhortation to you, my, um, my pleading with you is this, is that you don't deviate from that path. And that you don't let anyone sway you from that truth because it sounds good or sounds better or sounds more pleasing to your ear. But you accept what the scriptures say you accept what the church has believed. I thought of this uh, Hebrews chapter 4 verses 11 through 12 which say, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may, fail, may fall by the same sort of disobedience. And here he's speaking directly about the Israelites who for 40 years because of this, their disobedience had to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. You remember that story? He says, don't, don't end up it with them. Don't end up wandering in, in, in the wilderness because of their disobedience. Rather, for the word of God is living and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. Interesting, it says word of God, isn't it? Piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart that no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. There's a really interesting Bible sandwich, that's a theological term just so you know, going on here. First we have this little section here that, that warns us of disobedience. Well, disobedience from what? Right? That's an important question. Then we move on to this, uh, the meat, we might say, of the sandwich, or the cheese, because the cheese is the best part. For the word of God is, is this, this thing that is able to pierce our intentions, that it can drive down and separate thought and action, word and truth. And then finally, it then warns us at the bottom that all things will be exposed into everything that we must give an account so that, that, that's very interesting that it's giving us this, this summary of life. And the problem, see, with humans is that we are inherently selfish. We are inherently sinful. There is inherently a problem. I, I'm not so bothered by the person who I run into who says, well, I don't believe in God. Like, you know, bad things happen. People have a hard time with God. God's a big concept. There's a lot to talk about. I am really bothered by people who say, I don't believe in sin. Because I guarantee you, I could do something to you in a second, and you'll suddenly believe in sin. You will suddenly believe in right and wrong, right? We all believe in sin. We all believe in right and wrong. Everyone does, and the question is, why? Why? And who gets to say which is which? We've suddenly, in this, this culture that we have, this insane 30-second uh, culture that we have, 
no longer asks these big questions and no longer seeks to answer these big questions. Who gets to say? And the problem is that, that we always do what we think is right. If you didn't think it was right, if you thought it was a bad choice, then you wouldn't make it, right? I mean, you always think you're right. I always think I'm right. And so what's the solution and the problem that we can't be disobedient or that we're going to have to give an account? What's the solution for that? The solution is the Word of God, right? That the Bible is able to cut down between what is really true and what is really false. Are you really trying to prove, uh, to please yourself or your neighbors or your friends? Or are you trying to please God? The scriptures are able to cut that deep. And if we don't have something that cuts that deep, then you'll never know whether you're doing the right thing or the wrong thing. You'll never have any, any source of authority for that. And so the scriptures are the answer to this, but we resist that truth, don't we? And that's what we're seeing today. And, and, and again, the problem that I'm, I'm having is that I'm seeing it in the church. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 7. We're going to take a slight deviation here because Paul, I think, really exposes the source of the battle. And the source of the battle here is for everyone. It's, it's not just for the believer, but the unbelievers, for everyone. He's kind of going to describe the human condition itself. And he says um, in verse 7, I'll probably do some summary, but, but just so you know where I'm at. Verse 7 says, What shall we say then that the law is sin by no means? Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. I mean, that makes sense, does it? Just, just think of it for a second. If no one said, don't covet, don't long in your heart for something that doesn't belong to you, how would you ever know that's wrong? And so the Old Testament gives us this wonderful depiction. Paul is speaking about the Old Testament specifically. We get that in the New Testament as well. We get these pictures of, hey, here are a bunch of things that you ought not to do, and here are a bunch of things that you ought to do. And once that is revealed to you, what happens? Sin expands. Because suddenly, when I realize, oh, God says don't covet, suddenly I realize I do a lot of coveting. And I'm coveting here, and I'm coveting here, and I'm coveting here, and, we're, we're, and, and it expands, and it gets bigger. And then all of a sudden I learn about lust, and greed, and anger, and wrath, and idolatry, and godlessness, and, and all of these other things. And, and sin just kind of increases and increases and increases the more that I learn of the law. And that's a problem, isn't it? Especially when I realize that God, whether you know it or not, whether outside the world they believe it or not, God is going to judge you, not based on just what you think is right, but based upon what he thinks is right. So if he says it's wrong, he'll judge you by it. So if God just judges me based on my covetousness, I am in deep doo-doo. It's a big problem, because covetousness is only like a fraction of my issue. A fraction of my sin. Now Paul goes on in verse 10. I think I put it up here. I did. Good. Verse 10. The very commandment then that promised me life, it promised to bring me to God, it promised to expose my own heart and bring me to salvation. This, this commandment which promised life, in fact, proved to be death. For sin, seizing the opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law 
is holy, the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So as we expand in our knowledge of sin, as, as this begins to blossom and, and further and, and get bigger and bigger, I see my problem. And I want you to notice as you go home maybe and read this full text yourself, or even as we're speaking here, what's noticeably absent from the human condition and God's judgment and the commandments? What's noticeably absent? A word we like so much. Love. Paul doesn't ever say, well, hey, listen, you know, don't worry about it. God's love. Hey, don't, don't, don't fret. It's, it's all about love. And, or, hey, listen, don't, I, no judgment here. I'm not, I'm not judging. No. Paul lays it out. He doesn't equivocate. He doesn't get cowardly. He doesn't, as we were talking earlier, he doesn't shrink back because he's afraid. No, he says, God wrote the law, and the law stands before you, and the law convicts you concerning sin and judgment and righteousness. And you can turn away from it all you want, but one day you won't be able to turn away anymore. And I'm telling you this because you have to know it. You have to hear it. And you may believe it or you might walk away and say, that dude's crazy. Fine, you can do that. But my conscience is clean because I've shared that truth with you. And what happens as you begin to experience the truth of the law is as the law begins to display and I begin to see who God is, I begin to love God, I begin to see that even though I am so desperately wicked and needy, he he deeply loves me so much that we would say, God so loved the world he sent his own son that his son might pay the price for my sin, that he might be the propitiation, he might be the atonement, that I might be made right, justified before God. That's the extent of God's love. And yet at the same time, as I begin to understand God's love, my sin increases because the natural bent of the human heart is evil all the time. When have you not been selfish for a whole day? When have you not lost your temper? When have you not let your eye wander a second longer than it should have? When have you not wondered, man, I wonder what would have happened if I had a chance to And so we see at work within ourselves a battle, a war, a a brokenness that we desire God with our spirit and our mind and we begin to see the goodness that that exists, the richness of life in in a family and in a church and in heaven itself. But at the same time we begin to bend toward evil. What's the hope that we have? What what chance is there for me to, to seal that division into a wholeness? What healing is available to me these blessed words, so I find to be a law that when I want to do good, when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand, for I delight in the law of God and my inner being, but I, I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind, and it's, it's making me captive to the law of sin that dwells within my body. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? Who will save me? Who will rescue and redeem me from this body of death. These words. These words. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Those good news that there is healing, that there is redemption, that there is change, that there is an opportunity for us to come to a newness of life. So what does all this have to do with the sword of the Spirit? Paul is exposing for us the battle that we have with the Bible itself. 
When we feel ourselves resisting the word of God, when it says, do this, don't do that, live like this and don't live like this, and follow Jesus in this way, when we see these kinds of things going on, and our body or our mind or our will resists it, he's exposing to us why it was resisting it. And the answer to that, it's interesting that Jesus would say, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. All this love talk that we hear, I, we, we hear it all the time, don't we? Love, love, love. Love for the Christian doesn't begin with my love of self and it doesn't begin with my love of neighbor. It begins with my love of God. And once I love God, God is able to order my love in such a way that I can love properly. Because it's not loving for me to let Emery run around and be a crazy person. It's not loving to you and it's not loving to her. She must learn to grow up. She must learn to order her passions. She must learn that you can't do this because you will hurt other people and you will hurt yourself. She needs that instruction, and that is what the Scriptures do. They are, Paul says, the training that we need for righteousness. So if we aren't using it to train ourselves, if we're setting aside this text or that text because it doesn't fit our worldview anymore, we are wrong and hopelessly, desperately lost The question then that sits before us is not could you find another church that won't mind it? Because you can. All right? I love you all. I hope you all come back. But you could find somebody who will let you do whatever you want or say it's okay to do whatever you want. Or that you could find another place in the Bible that will allow you to equivocate and, 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 and reject what you read in another place. Or that you could find a scholar who will say, well, you know doesn't really mean that anymore. You're not reading that quite right. Or you could find support in your culture, which will then say to you, well, that's outmoded thinking. That's outdated thinking. That's antiquated notions. No, 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 no. Those are excuses concocted by our wicked hearts to let us get away with what we want to do. And the message of the scripture is this, for your life's sake, don't do that. That if you're going to love God, you have to love God on his terms. If you're going to love your neighbor, you have to love your neighbor on God's terms. And that the only way that we could come to this life is through Jesus. And this is Jesus, what he says when he comes. You know, it's it's so interesting. We've got uh, John 3.16. How many of you got it? Off the top of your head, just go. It was, it was just like a massive mumbles, but I'll take that as right. I'll take that as good. I'll give it all to you. Now, who's got 319? And this judgment of the world, that light has come into the world. Who's light? Jesus, right? I'm the light of the world. That light has come into the world, but men loved darkness instead of light, because their deeds are evil. And the message of the scriptures is let the light shine on you. Come to Jesus. Come to the scriptures. The question is then, will you accept the sword of the Spirit? And I guess I would begin here and say this word to you. And this is sort of the message of the the, the text that I've taken, I, I, we haven't fought, talked so much about how you can use the sword as, as, an, as a weapon, 
But I want to begin with, if the sword doesn't cut you first, you can't use it in battle. Because this week, as I was getting ready to throw some rocks, and I had some big ones lined up just right next to me, I began to look at my own life just for a moment. It's one of those Holy Spirit things, you know, where you, you don't want to, but he does that. And I thought for a moment, are you being a Pharisee? Because you've got some things that you need to work on. And it was in this moment that I realized the sword of the Spirit has to cut me before I can use it to fight against falsehood. It's interesting that this is the only weapon we're given, right? I mean, we're not given other weapons for any other battle, both in physical and in spiritual battles. Our only weapon is the Scriptures. That's all we've got. Scriptures and the faith that God will raise us up after they kill us or after you die. Those are all, that's all we've got. But the Word of God has to, has to cut you first. But the fear that I have for the church today, the fear that I have for the church today is that we're no longer allowing it to cut us. That we've given up on it as our authority. That it's no longer shaping our worldview. But the Bible is meant to deconstruct you. It's meant to tear you down. It's meant to, to build you then from the ground up so that your life, your thinking, your, your, your actions in every moment are now shaped according to the will of God. Not according to your own will or the will of your culture or the will of men. Which is why it's so interesting that as we read uh, Ephesians chapter 6 verses 10 through 20, he begins with this imperative, Stand! Stand with the belt of truth on your waist. And he ends with seize. Seize the sword of the Spirit because without truth as the imperative of our lives and without the sword of the Spirit live, burning in our hands, what good are we in the battle? We are no good. We are lifeless limbs, chaff to be cut off and driven away. There's an interesting text in Revelation, when, when, um, when John first sees Jesus in Revelation, he sees him, his eyes are like flame of fire, his feet are like burnished bronze, his refined in the furious, his, vo- his voice is like the roar of waters, and his right hand are seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. His word, his sword. An interesting letter to the Pergamum, again in Revelation chapter 2, he says to these people, these, these, uh, these Christians, this church, therefore repent, because if not, I will come to you soon and I will war against you with the sword of my mouth. His judgment upon the church itself, the word that he has given. Then at the end of Revelation, as he comes against the world in its totality, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and the one sitting on it, faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes like fire, his head crowned with many crowns, clothed in white, and the armies of God behind him, fine, linen, white, pure, on white horses, and from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. You see, the word is how he judges. How he judges us, how he judges the world. And as we begin this morning to wrap up this this sermon series, I want to ask you, church, 
Is this the solid rock on which you stand? Are you placing your life in the hands of the scripture and letting it cut you to the quick so that you can be changed, so that you can be shaped, so that you can be what God wants you to be? Because God has not destined us for judgment. It says in the scriptures, no, he's destined us for glory. He's destined us to do battle. He's destined us to be wearing this armor of God so that we can stand in the days that are evil and the days that are evil are on upon us. They're washing over us. And the question that we have as Paul lays this out for us is, are you armored? Are you ready to do battle? Because if you're not, then repent. If you're not, then change. If you're not, accept all that God has for you and much, much more so that you can stand, so that we can be an army marching forth in victory and life and in death and in life again. Where are you this morning? The scriptures also say that once we put on this full armor of God, we have a new kind of strength. For we walk in the flesh, right? We're bodied, but we're not waging war like people wage war out there. They wage war uh, with their own thoughts, with their own arguments, with their guns, with their bombs, with their, their economies, with their educational systems, but we don't work like that. For our For the weapons of our warfare are not for flesh and blood. They don't come out of physical things, but they have divine power, he says, to destroy strongholds. That's what you're destined for. You are destined to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. We take then every captive, every thought of our own captive, and we make it obedient to Christ. We are ready to do battle. Are you ready to do battle? With all of this stuff that we've talked about, are you ready? Because if you aren't, then get ready. Get ready. Because you're in a battle. You're in a war. And we all need you to stand. Because only together can we make it, right? Only together can we stand. Where are you this morning? Is there a decision that you need to make? Make it today as we stand and sing this song.